Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Over at Audible, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in every genre imaginable, and right now you can get a free audiobook with a free 30-day trial over at audibletrial.com slash other people. That's audibletrial.com slash O-T-H-E-R-P-E-O-P-L-E. You have to spell it out in the traditional way. Go get yourself a free audiobook with a free 30-day trial, audibletrial.com slash other people. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get one. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Big, stupid, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is Other People. This is a show that I made with my computer. This is listened to in Saudi Arabia by approximately 17 people on a regular basis, according to uh, my analytics. How's it going out there? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. I appreciate you being here. My guest today is Tim Johnston. He's the author of a novel called Descent which is available now from Algonquin Books. It's the official January selection of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. TheNervousBreakdown.com, for those of you who are not aware, is my online culture magazine slash literary community, and uh, it has its own book club. You can sign up for it. It only costs nine ninety nine a month. You get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days for that price. nine ninety nine a month. That's less than the cost of a book. That's a great deal. And uh, better yet, I interview all of the book club authors on this program. So if you want to sign up, Go to thenervousbreakdown.com and click on Book Club in the menu bar. So, uh, Tim Johnston, his novel is uh, garnering rave reviews. Esquire magazine calls Descent, quote, outstanding. The Washington Post calls it, quote, astonishing. NPR says, quote, this is much more than your typical thriller. Tim Johnston has written a book that makes Gone Girl seem gimmicky. And uh, Mary Roach calls it, quote, the best novel I've read in a long time. So it's that kind of book. And I'm very pleased to have Tim here on the program. He and I are going to be talking uh, in just a second. And speaking of the program, uh, today's episode is sponsored by Tweaked Audio, purveyor of fine earbuds and headphones. Right now, listeners of this program can get 33% off of any purchase. Just go to tweakedaudio.com and enter the offer code OTHERPEOPLE, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L. 
tweakedaudio.com, 33% off. Get yourself some earbuds, get yourself some headphones, uh, or both. So uh, before we get going, I wanted to say a few words about this Ann Bauer essay that was published by uh, Salon this past weekend. It went viral in the uh, literary world on the internet. Or at the very least, it seemed to be generating a ton of interest in my Twitter feed. And the essay deals uh, candidly with issues of uh, privilege and money and uh, writing. Issues which I should, uh, I should note have come up on this program many times. And uh, the gist of it is that Ann Bauer is a writer who can write comfortably because her husband has a great job and supports her. And, uh, you know, she talks about it. She writes all morning. She goes to yoga at midday and then works uh, sporadically in the afternoons as like a consultant of some kind. But this, you know, this was not always the case. And, uh, you know, she writes beautifully in the essay that she was once, uh, you know, poor and overworked and overwhelmed. And uh, incidentally, during this period, she produced zero books. No accident. So she's had it both ways in her life. And uh, she's coming clean, which I find admirable. And in the essay, and, and it's the part of the essay that I found uh, most uh, fascinating and disturbing and uh, probably the least surprising. You know, she gives examples of writers who are enormously privileged but who don't talk about their privilege and who sort of art, you know, artfully dance around it in a way that's damaging to the rest of us. And uh, so I'll, I'll read you a quote. She writes, uh, In this world where women will sit around discussing the various topiary shapes of their bikini waxes, the conversation about money or privilege is the one we never have. Why? I think it's the Marie Antoinette syndrome. Those with privilege and luck don't want the riffraff knowing the details. After all, if, quote, those people understood the differences in our lives, they might revolt or, God forbid, not see us as somehow more special, talented, and or deserving than them. End quote. You know, and then to illustrate this point, she talks about a writer who inherited many millions of dollars and who was on a worldwide book tour with his family. A great writer. And he's on a worldwide book tour with his family, his kids, two nannies, and he's just published a very good book to rapturous critical acclaim and he spent 10 years writing it. So Ann Bowers there in the, in the uh, audience and a young woman, an aspiring writer uh, in the audience, she raises her hand and she asks this guy, you know, how did he manage to do it? How did he sustain himself and his family in New York City for a decade while he worked on this book? And uh, the guy tells her that he had written, he had subsidized his, you know, the book by writing for The Nation and for salon.com. <laughs> so it's that kind of thing. And, you know, like to be fair, it's probably embarrassing for him to have to talk about his finances. I get that, uh, you know, to be uh, doing a reading in front of a group of strangers and then have to admit that you have, uh, an enormous inheritance is, is something that a person might naturally recoil from. I don't think that it makes him a bad guy. But, you know, I agree with Ann Bauer. We need, to, we need to open up about this stuff because the young woman who asked this question probably went home uh, feeling shitty about herself. Or, you know, she probably went home and went to, like, salon.com and was, like, desperately trying to figure out how to get a writing job. <laughs> you know? And nothing against uh, Salon or the nation. I'm just saying that, you know, last I checked, 
those publications aren't paying writer salaries that can support a family in New York City. So what about me? Uh, I'm a financial mess. I'll admit that. At the moment, I am anyway. And, uh, you know, I'm saved from being a true disaster by two things. One, my wife, who uh, has been incredibly patient and supportive the entirety of our marriage as I've tried to find a way to generate income with my various pursuits. It's been a struggle. But she's been there. And it bothers me. It sucks. <laughs> but, you know, she's one of the reasons I've been able to do uh, what I do. And then there's my family, my parents, who are uh, well off and have been there to catch me every time I've fallen. And I've fallen many times. They put me through college. They put me through graduate school. I've been very generous. And, you know, I'm not a guy who uh, inherit, you know, who has inherited uh, millions of dollars. I'm not independently wealthy, but I do have life support. That's the way I analogize it. You know, like there are people who have trust funds, people who inherit millions of dollars. They have life handed to them. It's an enormously fortunate set of circumstances. I, on the other hand, I have life support. Like I'm hooked up to machines. <laughs> There's like an EKG. It's not nearly as much fun, but it's better than being dead. You know, like when I look back on my, uh, my writing life and my career, it's no accident to me that I was able to finish my novel during graduate school, which was uh, the period of my life when I had the least amount of financial pressure bearing down on me. All I had to do was write back then. That was it. And I did it. You know, I got a book done. I got the book published. And since then, to varying degrees, I feel like I've been coping with a kind of slow motion catastrophe. You know, trying everything I can think of to make a living creatively. Uh, you know, trying to kind of write with this weight on my back. And not, you know, not succeeding as much as I would like. I think that, you know, how do you, I spend so much time parsing this, you know, there are people who write plenty of books with much worse uh, of a burden than I've had. But I set, you know, a pretty high bar for myself when it comes to uh, responsibilities I have to my family, to my wife and my kid and everything. And it's hard to write under those circumstances. So there's that part of it. And then I think, you know, a lot of what I've done in the literary realm and as an entrepreneur, if that's what you want to call it, as an editor, as a publisher, as a podcaster, and so on, a lot of that has been an outgrowth of how I felt uh, in the aftermath of the publication of my book. Because I think I recognized and continue to recognize how easy I've had it compared to so many people, both writers and non writers. You know, I'm lucky. And I know that I'm lucky. And I also know that I don't deserve that luck. Nobody deserves it. Nobody deserves to get a trust fund. Nobody deserves to have life support. You either get it or you don't. You're born to it. Now, I went to graduate school with so many people who were taking on a big mountain of debt and uh, really didn't have a great way to repay it, to say the least. And me, I left that experience with zero burden, not a penny of debt. 
And then, uh, you know, shortly thereafter, I published a novel with a major house. And uh, as great as that was and as good as it felt, I also uh, felt uh, a sense of guilt. Which I guess is, you know, maybe that's the Catholic child in me. But, uh, you know, coupled with that guilt was a sense of responsibility of which I am proud. You know, it was a feeling that because of the luck I've had, it was my responsibility to try to help uh, those who were not quite as lucky, namely other writers whose cause, you know, I'm intimately familiar with. And, you know, I mean, anybody who spends any amount of time in the literary game comes to know uh, a great many writers who are struggling horribly when it comes to money. Like if you're a writer who doesn't know other writers who are completely fucked financially, then I want to have you on this show. (laughs) Like, where are you hanging out? You know, and, and finance struggling financially. It's a real fucking stress. It's painful. And I know it. I feel it every day. I can't sleep because of it sometimes. And, uh, yet I don't feel it nearly as bad as, as, uh, some people. So you know, what am I saying? I, I think I'm just echoing Ann Bauer and, uh, her essay at Salon. We need to be more open. We have an obligation to one another. It helps when we, uh, ventilate this stuff as opposed to, uh, you know, putting up walls. We should all have a clear idea of what the playing field looks like so that, you know, maybe we could, uh, one day arrange the playing field in a way that's more equitable if that's ever possible. And, you know, I would even go one step further that, you know, people of enormous privilege, writers who happen to experience enormous financial success or who inherit it or whatever, uh, should help other writers or at the very least, just help other people. It doesn't even have to be writers. And it gets tricky to talk about that because people get sensitive, you know, don't tell me what to do with my money. I, you know, I get that, but what I just, I just can't help but imagine a world where people's sense of responsibility, you know, I can't help but imagine a world in which one's privilege were directly proportional to one's sense of, of responsibility to others. Wouldn't it be nice? So like, let me give you an example of the way that this can sort of, uh, this thought process can play out in my head this morning. I'm reading a profile of Tom Brady, the, uh, new England Patriots quarterback who's getting ready to play in the super bowl. Uh, we all know who Tom Brady is, right? My, my audience isn't that, <laughs> uh, nerdy. So Tom Brady is a profile written by Mark Leibovich, who incidentally has been a guest on this program. And, uh, in the profile, uh, Leibovich is asking Brady about his future. You know, Tom Brady's 37 years old. He, you know, that's old for a professional athlete. His football career is going to be over soon. And uh, Brady, in what I attempt, uh, in what I think was an attempt to be candid, was talking about, uh, you know, how when he's no longer playing the game, he's going to struggle to find a purpose. And you know, like at the at the moment, he's 37, and he's in this in this phase where he's kind of like manically working out and taking supplements. And, uh, you know, eating food prepared for him by a private chef in an effort to extend his career as an athlete. And you know what? More power to him. 
I, like, I don't begrudge him that. This is what he's good at. This is what he loves to do. Yeah, I hope he plays until he's 45. Go for it. But you know, this thing about not having a purpose, I couldn't help but think to myself, uh, hey, man, you're worth like a quarter of a billion dollars at least. And, and so is your wife, for that matter. Uh, like, what about taking like half of that and making poor people your life's purpose? Like, call me crazy. Like, and, and you know what? Isn't that the point of enormous privilege? Am I misunderstanding this? Isn't that the calculation that should be made when uh, one finds himself in such a lucky spot? By the way, uh, I want to say that this portion of the profile of Tom Brady was conducted in Tom Brady's like 14,000 square foot mansion in Brookline, Massachusetts, just to paint a picture. I don't mean to presume, but it's hard to read about that sort of stuff and not get a little, uh, what's the word? Agitated. It just seems so rare, you know, like, uh, when I think about the rich, like how many, how many rich people out there, or, you know, to bring it back to a literary realm, how many uh, really affluent writers are out there actively supporting the less fortunate in the tribe? And you know what? I know there are many, and uh, I probably just don't know about most of them. And I, un- and, uh, you know, I understand the virtues of uh, discretion, like not wanting to seem flashy or self-aggrandizing, but you know, there's also something to be said for uh, setting a good example and inspiring others to do good. That's my understanding of it anyway. That's my aspiration. Like, wouldn't that, that's the best part about being rich, isn't it? Or, or would be <laughs> like being able to help people, being able to ease other people's burdens and provide opportunities and to help people realize their dreams and, and so on and so forth. But it seems like what we mostly get or what we too often get is a closing off instead of an opening up when it comes to wealth. And, you know, to be fair to the wealthy, it's not, uh, it's not an entirely a bed of roses to be wealthy. You have a lot of money. Uh, it can be isolating. Everybody wants something from you. You don't know who to trust. I understand that. So, I don't know. Those are my extemporaneous thoughts on the matter. I think we should be more open. I think that the, like what this uh, essay by Ann Bauer and what I've been talking about speaks to, I think it speaks to the wealth gap the enormous stratification of wealth, the toxic stratification of wealth in our society, which is at an, you know, an all-time high historically, where you have all this money concentrated at the top and uh, everybody else treading water. It's not good for anybody, including the rich, ultimately. But, you know, <laughs> I say that, and like they're like uh, on their own private island saying, you know, it's actually pretty good. I don't know. Who wants to live like that? You know, you're living in a gated community and everyone else outside the gate is uh, miserable. So anyway, if I'm ever extro- if I'm ever fabulously wealthy, uh, I'm going on the record right now and saying that I will be uh, very generous. And if I'm not, I want you to uh, track me down and play this for me. 
Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Tim Johnston. His novel, Descent, is available now from Algonquin Books. It's the official January selection of the TNB Book Club. And I'm uh, I'm just delighted to have him here. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Tim Johnston, and his book once again is called Descent. Uh, in the big sense, I'm in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, getting a little smaller, I'm in, I'm on the campus of the uh, Memphis University of Memphis, who is my employer. I'm on third floor of the Patterson Hall in my little tiny office, which is entirely. Uh, cinder block bricks, painted white, and no window. All right, so academia. Academia. I'm in the ivory tower. All right, right and, now as we speak. And are you from Tennessee? Like you've is that where you've always been? No, y'all. I'm from Iowa. I'm oh, from, uh, Iowa City, Iowa, up north. Oh wow. Okay, so uh, home of yeah. the the uh, Iowa Writers Workshop. I've heard of it. You've heard yeah. of it. Did you go there? Yeah. I did not go there as a graduate student. I went. Uh, I snuck around there as an undergraduate student. I did about all you could do as an undergraduate student and not get an MFA there. Um, I uh, took a lot of classes with MFA candidates who were there teaching at the time or they're taking, uh, getting their MFAs at the time. Anybody, any yeah. notables? Um, Ehud Havazalet I took a class from. He's had a few books out, um, really uh, readers of real good short stories and, and uh, excellent novels will know the name. Um, two others, um, whose names are kind of escaping me at the moment, but who published well, did well, um, uh, but not like rock star names. Okay. Well, I want to, I want to uh, talk about Descent. Uh, the, first of all, the Nervous Breakdown Book Club featured title. It's, it's great to be featuring it and it's great to be featuring, um, a page turner. Uh, you know, not that, not that all the, you know, we try to feature a page turner every month. I mean, that, that term can sometimes... Uh, be misused or whatever. Obviously, every book is trying to be a page turner, but there's something thrillerish about this. But that it, it also has like a high literary quality, and uh, I want to I want to talk a bit about that because I feel like sometimes people who have literary aspirations in their writing um, can forego plot. You know, like the literary aspirations and the characterizations and the beauty of the prose can sometimes come at the at the expense of uh, plot and and you know really. Uh, putting together a story of uh, sound architecture. And it feels like this book uh, succeeds at being both. And I'm wondering how you did that, and if that was something you set out to do or if that's just like a happy accident. 
Uh, well, first of all, thank you for the kind words and being featured on Nervous Breakdown is awesome. Very happy about that. Um, so to answer the question, uh, it wasn't something I set out. I didn't. The word thriller or page turner never crossed my mind when I when I thought of when I thought of anything besides the literary side of things. I thought, well, I want the book to be compelling. I want it to be exciting. I want it to be you know the kind of book I would have loved to read before I understood that the difference between, uh, you know, like commercial fiction and literary fiction. Books I read as a youngster, as an adolescent, you know, like Stephen King or other uh, exciting page turner type stuff. So I wanted to have that element, but my main concern is I wanted to, uh, to represent what I had come to understand about writing and all that I had tried to learn at Iowa and University of Massachusetts, which was essentially literary writing. So um, I set out to write a literary novel to the best of my ability. And, um, but I also wanted it to be, you know, a good, exciting read. I didn't think of it in terms of page turner. I just wanted it to be compelling. So I wanted it to be of the highest quality I could produce, uh, but also be fun to read. And okay, but okay, but plot architecture, like rel- uh, compared to other books sure. that you've written or stories that you've written, you know, is this something that you, uh, w- you know, do you feel like you did better in this book or is it something you've been doing all along? Well, I think this book is a real sort of a departure for me. I've, I've never done anything quite like this. I have a young adult novel that came out 10 years, 12 years ago or more. And, um, short stories, which, which you know, plots can, can really sort of be secondary in a short story in a way that you can't in a big, fat novel that people are reading all the way to the end. They want, a, you know, a sort of a resolution at the end. But anyway, the architecture sort of happened more or less, um, I don't want to say accidentally, but I sort of made it up as I went along. I didn't have an outline or anything like that. Um, I kind of knew the ending I was sort of working towards. Um, but I just sort of plowed my way through the, the initial writing of it, and then through a long process of revision and getting help from the various editors that I had, uh, began to make began to make sense of the actual architecture of the plot. And, and I should say too, I mean, and maybe this is just a coincidence, but I find it interesting that this book, uh, like, initially occurred to you uh, while you were building a house. Right. Yes. That's where like that. that that's where the first spark was. So there's something architectural about this from the beginning. Well, yes, that's a very clever uh, connection. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, the truth of the matter is the house was essentially built um, and I was doing the finish work on it. Is it your uh, house? Uh, no, it was a it was a it was a family house. My father and stepmother had built it up in Colorado in the Rocky Mountains. Whereabouts? At the uh, Winter Park. Oh, yeah, sure. The, you know, it's a yeah. ski resort town. It's a bit off the beaten path. You have to leave the highway and really. You really have to kind of be determined to go to this resort to uh, get there. Yeah, actually go over the Continental Divide and back down again, just like in the characters do in the book. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and they had built this house up there as a uh, as a sort of vacation uh, house that they were going to rent out when they weren't using it. Uh, and they got the house built, but they had nothing inside the house. There were no doors or finish work or cabinets or appliances or toilets. <laughs> And they needed somebody uh, with those skills to go up there and do that. So you, you, you can do that stuff? I can do all that stuff. Wow. I've been doing that stuff for years. You're a man. I've built, yeah, I've built houses from the ground up. No shit. Literally. 
Yeah. See, cause, yeah. okay, that a I'm envious because I'm I'm horrendous with tools. I can't you know I can't even I can barely hang a picture. But uh, right. you know, secondly, I, other talent. I, you know, it's debatable. <laughs> but I, I feel like uh, I feel like being able to do that sort of thing and having that mindset. You know, because it, it, there's a certain uh, there's a certain uh, intellect that it takes to understand how to put things together and you know all that kind of thing. And uh, but I feel like that might serve you well when you're putting together a novel. I've said this before on the show. Like I think there's there's much that can be uh, learned, you know, uh, across uh, media and across different uh, art forms or disciplines. Architecture strikes me as one that could be useful to a novelist, building, you know, that kind of thing. Absolutely, absolutely. And, I, you know, and I've been doing that for many years. Every, everything that I've written has basically been done while I was a carpenter, you know, in between the cracks of whatever project I was doing or whatever I was building. Uh, and in the case of this book... Um, I, I, if I had not loaded up my truck with tools and gone up there finally and done what my father had been harassing me to do, uh, I never would have. It never would have occurred to me to write this book. And you know, if you've read the book, you know that the father in the book is a uh, carpenter himself. So there was a, a sort of a natural continuity there between myself and these characters. Although it's you know the autobiography autobiography kind of stops there. Well, and but, I, so, yeah. Uh, but I think too, like one of the things you know, because you you know, obviously you were working from the inside out a little bit. This was your experience up there, and uh, it's kind of kind of like you know, I mean, you're pretty uh, you're you're up in the sticks when you're in Winter Park, you know, and, and you're sort yeah. of sort of having a, a Stephen King, The Shining, you know. I, I, were you alone? Overlook, or? Overlook Hotel. Yeah. Away. So yeah. it's it's good for the imagination. But one of the things that I think is interesting is that you know the story for uh, listeners who you know who haven't read it, it's about. Uh, a family, and it's about a daughter who goes missing, and it's a it's the kind of story at surface level that we've heard a million times, you know, in the media. It's a you know, it's a true crime. It's like lifted from true crime, but it's then given uh, literary treatment. You know, you do a deep dive on the the characters involved, and so I, I like that. I like the idea of taking, you know, a narrative that seems very familiar. Um, you know, from the outside looking in, and then you know, by by way of uh, you know, going into the people involved defamiliarizes it. And I, I was reading an interview you did in print, and you were talking about how, you know, in life that we, we hear these stories, you know, on the news, or we watch it on CNN or whatever, and it never really occurs to us that these kinds of things could happen to us. Or, you know, we don't spend that much time really uh, considering that possibility. And yet, uh, if they do, suddenly it's, uh, it's brand new. You know, and it's not it's not familiar at all. And you kind of live it hour by hour and or at least that's the way uh, that you portray it. And I think that's really uh, astute, you know, like it's a it's it's a completely different beast when it's actually happening to you. (laughs) Yeah, well, I I couldn't have said it better. And I don't know what to add to that, except that's exactly what I was hoping to do. You know, I never the the story itself was never uh, the point. You know, it was never the sensational story that we've all heard before. Uh, a million times on the TV and the radio, unfortunately, or on the, in the news. Uh, but it was always about the aftermath, you know, and that's why the story, after the girl actually goes missing, um, the story jumps ahead to two years later, when all that kind of search mission stuff has sort of gone by the wayside and the posters have begun to fade, and, you know, the FBI have lost interest and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so it was always to me about what happens to the family once the cameras stop rolling and um, the rest of the world goes about their business and goes on to the next exciting story, and you're still there, and your your child is still missing. 
So, and okay, are you a parent? I, I want to say, I remember the book was dedicated. It seems like you're a dad. Yeah, the, the dedication is a, is a curious thing. Um, it's, a little, uh, it's a little enigmatic and not strictly um, accurate. Uh, it is dedicated to all daughters, to your daughters, and to my daughter. Right. And to mine, too, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I mean, because like... I, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, because, you know, uh, thinking about the genesis of this book, like, yeah, you're up in Colorado, you're, you're uh, putting the finishes on this house, and suddenly this family occurs to you. But it also strikes me as an imaginative exercise that's rooted at least some degree in parental fear. And I say that as the father of a daughter, so... I can get that. Like, you're like, oh, God, you know, like the last thing yeah. any, any parent would ever want to have to deal with is something happening to his or her child. And, you know, is that, is that part of it for you? Was this some sort of like, I don't know, writers have a, have a way of doing this. We go into our fears. We sort of examine them yeah. and pick them up and try to imagine what would happen as a way of maybe, I don't want to say transcending them, but maybe understanding them better and, and maybe dulling um, the intensity of them somehow. Or Yeah. You know, I've given a lot, this a lot of thought since uh, since the book was finished and uh, since I started talking about it as a finished thing. Um, I don't know that I could have written this book if I were an actual father of daughters. Um, I don't know if I could have handled it. And I know a lot of fathers who haven't been able to handle the actual reading. <laughs> it's know? tough. It's, it's tough. It's too, so, yeah, it's too much. And, uh, so wait, and I'm you, all right with it. You, yeah. you don't have kids? I don't have any kids. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought you did. Well, I know, and and you could make that assumption from the from the dedication that you read, but I would, that's that's a it's sort of a metaphorical dedication. And, okay. Uh, and it kind of came about. This is going to sound really pathetic, but uh, I had de- dedicated my two former books to you know my parents and my siblings and all that, and there was really no one. <laughs> There was no one I wanted <laughs> to really dedicate a book to. You can dedicate. Uh, you can dedicate your next. Dedicate your next one to me. I'll let you do that. Uh, that's 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 <laughs> in the bag. That's done. Yeah. So I had to come up with something else uh, if I wasn't going to dedicate it to an actual person. And I did feel a, a great, you know, sort of. The book gave me a, a, a much stronger sort of sense of tenderness and 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 uh, alertness and fear for all daughters. Uh, just because you live with that story for so long, and 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 you see it sort of playing out again and again in the in the newspapers and TV, and so and my and I and I have, I'm surrounded by people with daughters. I have all my friends, you know, all seem to just have daughters, and my brother has a couple of daughters. And my nieces, and you know, very close to. And so it was a natural thing to dedicate it to daughters in general, and um, and I kind of think of Caitlin as my daughter, and. Daughters of my friends is my, I've become sort of my daughters in a way. So that metaphorical thing is not not too great of a stretch for me. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and it makes sense too that you could you could endure having to contemplate this maybe a little bit better than say someone like me who's like right in the thick of it with a four year old because it's painful to consider. You know, it's like yeah, I couldn't imagine. It's difficult. Yeah. It's difficult, and yeah. uh, you know, but. I'm glad you did. <laughs> well, good. I'm, yeah. glad, I'm glad you got through it. <laughs> good for you. <laughs> oh, man. So uh, let's talk a little bit about you and Iowa City. You, know, you said you're from Iowa City? Yeah. Okay. So born there, raised there, entire childhood. Exactly. Until I went to graduate school. Wow. And uh, a, yeah. a writer from the start or became a writer late? No. No. Well, it depends on what you mean by late. I, um, well, I was from the start, as far as long as I can remember, was a, was a drawer. Um, for lack of a better 
now, and I was drawing all the time. Uh, and um, somewhere along in my adolescence, uh, I began to uh, draw less and write more. They were kind of there was a crossover period where I was sort of <laughs> illustrating, you know, narratives. You into, and, uh, were, you, were you into comic books? Comic books, definitely into comic books. Yeah, big Spider-Man fan as a as a kid, and I was always drawing superheroes. You know, my buddy Jeff Dunovitz and I drew comic books and and uh, used my old singer my singer sewer machine for uh, uh, doing the binding. You know, just stitched a little line up the edge, and we sold them for twenty five cents at school, and people actually bought them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyway, yeah, I was um, I was always interested in, in stories and and characters and, you know, good and evil. And, and somewhere uh, along in, you know, my uh, middle school years, as they call them now, junior high, we called it back then, uh, I remember reading um, Carrie by Stephen King. And I had never read anything like that. It was my first experience with, you know, kind of reading terror. And, uh, <laughs> and I was very excited about it, sort of mentally stimulated by it. And I remember writing this... Uh, sort of um, uh, fan fiction, I guess you'd call it these days, piece about a, a young man at a middle school who sort of uh, takes out his uh, vengeance upon the principal's office, which I was very familiar with in reality. And uh, and my chums were very uh, um, impressed by it. And, and uh, of course, these days, if anyone, had, any administrator or teacher had seen it, I would have been you know, promptly. Yeah. I was going to say times uh, of times have changed. But yeah, exactly. You don't, you don't get away with that. I think a teacher might've even seen it back then and thought it was pretty cool. So that was the kind of encouragement a kid like me needed. And, and, um, so when I got to, uh, high school and college, uh, the drawing was pretty much had fallen away and I was beginning to write short stories. And I looked up from this and found myself living in the middle of Iowa city, Iowa, um, home of the Iowa Writers Workshop, and you know what better place for a you know young new writer to find himself? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, first things first. I'm forever fascinated with the um, the tendency for adolescents to be drawn to horror. Like that connection is so uh -huh. strong. I'm just a, it always it, I, every time I, I hear, talk to somebody who's had that experience because I was the same way. You know, from like age yeah. whatever, eleven to fourteen or eleven to fifteen. Like I couldn't get enough of just like you know, horrible slaughters and monsters. Exactly. The more graphic. The more yeah. Violent. What is it with that? It's, it's like tied. I think it's like the best explanation I've heard is that it's tied to like adolescence and the changing of the body. And, um, you know, there's some sort of tie between all the, uh, you know, attendant, uh, hormones and fears and whatever. That, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's tumultuous and it's, and it's nasty and, you know, kind of grotesque yeah exactly <laughs> and, and, and so we're sort of looking for that that um coral correlation in, in what we're reading yeah and it's like there's something fun about being scared at that age i don't know what you know yeah. I, oh I, yeah i loved it absolutely i remember walking along reading um shoot i was just walking along the sidewalk reading salem's lot you know and i i would walk as i was reading because i was just so engrossed and somebody came from the other direction and i about i about had a heart attack i mean about ran and 
into the street, <laughs> terrified by the presence of another human being. Yeah, that's pretty. I mean, you know, it's pretty awesome when a book can make you that terrified. Because I remember having having to read The Shining with like the light on in the living room with my family. Like I had to have people there. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I still think about some of those books when I go into basements or something. Sure. So uh, your folks, uh, like, what did they do? Were they supportive? Like, would you, do you have any kind of, like, familial history with the arts or anything like that? Yeah, there's a little bit of history there. You know, I mentioned the Iowa Writers' Workshop, and my mother, uh, Judy Johnston, was a poet in the Iowa Writers' Workshop for a while when I was, uh, you know, under 10, I think. It was early. It was late 60s. So um, I was familiar with that idea and the idea that somebody might go to these classes and and write poems and do that kind of thing. Um, so there was that background. Uh, my father's a lawyer, and uh, but they were both very encouraging and supportive of the of my drawing talent when I was a kid. You know, I was very much encouraged. They were forever giving me, you know, drawing pencils and pads of paper for birthdays and such. And you know, that was that. The, Contributed a lot to who I turned out to be. So yeah, they weren't freaked out by it. No, not at all. Though I have to say, uh, you know, my mother knew better than anybody how, from being a you know a poet and being around all those writers, how difficult the writing life could be. You know, right. in terms of creature comforts and making a living and those things, practical concerns. So when I when I told her that I was I had been accepted to UMass Amherst and I was going, uh, she she kind of paled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nobody knows better than a writer, but it's also, I think like nobody knows better how difficult it can be, but also I think nobody knows better that you like, you can't really stop somebody if they've got the bug, yeah. you know? Yeah. And the curious thing is that she never, she never thought that I wouldn't, she never thought that it would be a shame if I went to art school to be an artist. You know, it's like that to her, that was like, what I was supposed to do. Well, yeah, maybe like she's thinking, oh, he can do graphic design. You know, he's got something. Yeah, to, something. Something. I don't know. But she's a poet. But she had never seen any evidence. She had never seen any evidence of the writing. Talent. Right. She just always seen the drawing town. So I think she thought I was making a great mistake. She may have. She may have come around to our way of thinking by now. I'm not really sure. So your parent, your parents are still with us. So they've gotten to see you. Probably. They are. Okay. Yeah. Um, barely. Barely. I have to say, my father. Uh, he's fine now, but he actually suffered a. Uh, total cardiac arrest a couple of years ago. Holy shit. Um, yeah, and they, and they, uh, he was, well, you know, he was playing basketball at 76. And, uh, That'll do and, it. Uh, got, yeah. Although they say it would have happened anywhere, but his luck was that he was playing with a doctor and, and he was at a gym where they had a defibrillator and, and people were on the, on the job and, uh, keeping him, well, they weren't keeping him alive, but they were keeping his, you know, his organs stimulated uh, until the EMTs got there very quickly and brought him back, and you know he had his operation. He's fine now. We played golf all summer last summer. And, no uh, kidding. So, basketball is sort of off the table, but so was he? Was he technically uh, dead, deceased, or anything? he was? Did he, he was? Did he, he was all? He totally flatlined and he saw no lights. Oh shit! I was going to ask. He yeah, didn't see, he, I know. He didn't see like he wasn't touched by an angel. <laughs> Nothing. Well, if he was, he doesn't remember it. So there's a little wiggle room there. He may yeah. have had a great you know, out-of-body experience that he just simply doesn't remember. Okay, but, but just absolutely, absolutely nothing. Absolutely flatlined, yep. Absolutely nothing and no memory of anything during that period. Right. Next memory was he was in the hospital and he was wondering if he made the shot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? So he had enough memory? Because, like, a lot of times with trauma, 
you don't even like have any memory of like what led up to it. But I guess that's more with like car accidents and stuff. But like, no, it, but it's true. He he had no memory of falling or feeling bad or anything. Um, he just knew he had been playing basketball. And he wanted okay. Well, I'm glad he's yeah. I'm glad he's on the rebound. Well, yeah, it's uh, that's the great thing that he, you know, it would have it would have been a great disappointment in my life uh, if he had not been able to read it because there's a really strong father son element in there, and and um, I think it I think he can't help but <clears throat> see us in it, you know, when he reads it. Sure, uh, you know, and, and his other sons, but um, on the other hand, I would have had somebody to dedicate it to. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, so, and you said uh, other sons. So you got some siblings. I do. I have uh, two older brothers and a younger sister and a younger brother by adoption. Um, my father and stepmother uh, adopted uh, Harris as a uh, baby right out of the womb, and uh, he's now all of 21, 22, finishing college. Very exciting. Wow. Yeah. But, but like fairly significant age gap. Very significant, yep. I was I was already uh, I don't know how old I was when he was when he was you know carrying him around in diapers and stuff. It was a lot of fun actually for all of us. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. So, okay, so you go to Iowa, um, and you're you're already on the writing track at that point. Like you, part of your decision to go to Iowa was because you knew of the workshop. No, not at all. Actually, um, I started Iowa as an art major. Okay. Yeah, and uh, I got quickly discouraged by a really poor uh, advisor. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't actively trying to discourage me. He was just such a poor advisor that I got discouraged. What did and, he say? Um, well, he didn't say anything. He just was very unhelpful. I think he might yeah. have been drunk. Right. I don't know. Um, but I just couldn't get anything out of him. Uh, so I took a couple of courses the summer. I took a course the summer before between high school and college. And it was a sort of um, overview of art, world art, everything, you know, architecture, art. It was just like the history of art, and I still remember so much from that course. I'm so glad I took it. I can look at things and say, oh, I know that. I know that cathedral. I know that painting. Um, it's amazing how much I learned in one class like that. But then I got discouraged and wanted to do something else, and uh, I began sort of looking through the catalog to see what it is I wanted to do, and the things that were catching my eye were all these uh, literature courses about books. I thought, oh, that's cool. What kind of major is that? Oh, that's an English major. Oh, that's what I want to be. So that's how I became an English major. And working through the writing, I'm working through the reading, um, certainly uh, led to writing. And were there big writers aside from Stephen King? Like when you were at the college, like uh, college level, was there were there writers that really got to you, and um, you know, you started imitating and whatnot? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I wasn't really imitating. Um, Seriously, I, I sort of I always sort of imitate in a in a kind of a I don't know kind of a uh, what do you call it blanking on the subconscious. Word. I, no, I would just sort of play act. I would pretend to, to write like these writers. I right. was trying to write for real, and uh, one of them was uh, of all of all writers uh, Beckett. Beckett's Malloy. I don't know if you know this. He has a trilogy: Malloy, Malone dies, and uh, the unnamed. Right. And uh, I just thought Malloy was the most hilarious thing I'd ever read, and so weird and brilliantly written. And uh, I remember uh, writing a piece, sort of in a imitation of that, and uh, my professor really loving it. <laughs> 
And so he was, uh, he was, uh, this was Brooks Landon at the University of Iowa. And, uh, he was a real early encourager of my writing. Encourager. Just made that one up. But, uh, so he had a lot to do with sort of recognizing that I had a little spark, even if it was derivative and I was just sort of playing around. Um, he was the one who first planted the seed of going to graduate school in my brain, which I'd never thought of doing. Yeah. Well, you know, it's amazing. I, I, it's a, it's a, um, a sentiment that I hear echoed on this show constantly is about the uh, impact that like one or two teachers had on a writer's yeah. life in terms of setting their course. Like it's not to be underestimated. Totally. Yeah. There was one of those in high school too. Yeah. Um, I mean, I had that, you know, every, almost everybody, somebody, somewhere along yeah. the line, an adult in your life says, Hey, you're pretty good at this or like keep going. Yeah. And like, you know, uh, I think it's I think it's kind of funny to reflect on because at the time I don't remember being like enormously demonstratively grateful or making a big exactly. fuss about it, but you know it 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 uh, I took it to heart, you know clearly. Yeah. The moment comes and go, and it comes and goes, and it's only later that you think, wow, that was really an amazing thing for that person to do yeah. at that time in my life. Well, it's also like I was just like, oh, I'm, I'm good at something? <laughs> like, just tell, yeah, me what, exactly. tell, me what to, tell me what to do. I don't know what to do. <laughs> yeah, right. Direction. Um, so I, Direct like, uh, Yeah, but before we go, like, continue along with like education and kind of coming up as a writer, I, I, I forgot to ask earlier with regard to uh, dissent and also regard to your upbringing because – you know, you grew up in uh, the Midwest, you know, kind of, uh, um, you know, very Americana place to grow up. You know, you're in the heartland. I'm, I'm from Indiana. Salt of the earth. Salt of yeah. the earth, exactly. So it's not the kind of place that you typically uh, associate with crime. I mean, you know, these are places where it's a, it's good to raise a family and people know one another and leave their doors unlocked and all that kind of stuff, or, or so I imagine. Um, but I do recall from my own childhood that every, you know, there were like a couple of instances of violent crime. That were sc- right. that were scary as hell, and I still remember them. You know, and it had a big impact on me as a kid because when you live in a place where violent crime is not normal, um, you know, it, it is highly abnormal. You know, right, uh, right. You know, then it happens. It can be terrifying, and that's not to say it's not terrifying for some kid who you know grew up in in uh, New York City or something. But it's just, I don't know. I guess you may be a little bit more streetwise or uh, exposed to yeah. things there. Was there anything like that from your childhood that captured your imagination or? Um, you know, stuck to you that you think might uh, have, you know, have played some role in like your embrace of horror as an adolescent and then maybe all the way down the line to when you wrote Descent? Well, I'm trying to think. It, it seems to me if there is that I've, I've buried it. I, uh, I had a pretty unremarkable childhood as far as that goes. Um, yeah, I don't, uh, nothing is, I don't have anything, uh, any harrowing tales of small town uh, heinousness. Okay, like like, but when but you, I, when you were growing up, was it, was it was it like the "Don't Talk to Strangers" era, or was it were you? A, a, no, you know it wasn't. In, in those days, you know, you, I my parents were very sixties um, and seventies. You know, they were they were really into doing their their thing. And uh, my dad went off to the legislature in Des Moines early, and. And we were kind of just left to run around with the with the neighborhood kids, and and we were all just sort of a pack running around at night, and and uh, nobody was paying too much attention to what we were doing, you know. It wasn't it wasn't the parenting that you see today, um, where everything's structured and organized, and and uh, you know your your sort of um, parents are just extremely vigilant. Well, was your dad a, um, was your dad a politician? Would, he went to the legislature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was back in the day. He was in the Iowa legislature. State legislator. And, uh, 
state legislator. Yep. All right. Yep. Look at that. And later he ran for Congress and unsuccessfully in the 80s, 84. Wow. And uh, so, yeah, it was a pretty, uh, it was a very sort of, um, yeah, no one got, no one went missing. I, I do remember once a kid, a kid uh, in junior high, now that I'm thinking of it, uh, left class, I mean, left school, and there was some, some idea that he was going to do some harm to himself. And I remember a number of us got all worked up that we had to go find him and stop him from doing that. And we all, you know, three or four of us boys um, left school to go try and find this kid. And, and by the time we got to his house, he'd already been home and he was off seeing his um, psychiatrist. And his mom gave us some cookies and thanked us <laughs> and sent us, sent us on our way. And that's about as, oh, gosh, there's another thing. Yeah, see, see? You're, it's like it's like therapy here. You're yeah. bringing up my memories. I'm dredging up the. I knew much, to... I'm going to have to write you a check for this. <laughs> at the end of this. But um, it's such a sad story. I mean, it was a uh, um, a kid at 12 years old. He uh, he hung himself. He oh. hung himself from his shower curtain with his uh, Boy Scouts bolt belt. And um, he was a he was not a close friend of mine, but he was a really close friend of a close friend of mine. And uh, we were all of 12 years old, you know, when this happened. And it was because, you know, it was uh, supposedly because his father didn't like him. You know, he was kind of a chubby kid, and his father really doted on his younger brother. And that was the story that sort of came back to us. Oh, God. But I I always thought of what, you know, imagined his parents walking in and opening the door and finding him there. You know, it was just, it was, you know, that was really a horrible thing to contemplate. And I remember going to his gravesite and, reading the obituary and, and, uh, yeah, so that, that was pretty, that was pretty gnarly. Well, you know, the thing about these things, like when you have like a, a tragedy or some sort of uh, awful crime that gets committed, uh, they, they spark narrative thoughts, don't they? Like narrative imaginings, you know, you can't help, but Absolutely. like, what, what was it like in that moment? And then what was it like when his parents came in or, you know, a girl goes yeah. missing and it's like, well, what actually happened? And, you know, immediately your, your mind starts racing and, um, you know, like generationally thinking of my upbringing, like I remember, you know, like I, I did grow up in the don't talk to strangers. Maybe it was just like my paranoid suburb in Milwaukee or whatever, but it was like, uh, I don't know if you recall Adam Walsh, the guy, you know, his dad went on to do America's most wanted, but when Adam Walsh went missing, it was like this national news story. And right. he, he was like out at a shopping mall with his mom and just like vanished, you know, like she right. left, she left the shopping cart for two seconds and the guy, kid was gone and then they found him and he, you know. Yeah. And it was like yeah. this awful story. And I remember, man, that really impacted me as a kid. And it was like, holy yeah. cow, you know, this can happen. And then, you know, it's always like, don't talk to strangers. Don't talk to strangers, which yeah. it's a pretty hardcore thing to tell children. Uh, I mean, I get why they, you know, why people were doing it, but it seems a little bit overreact, you know, overreactive. Yeah. I don't remember getting, I mean, I remember the, I'm, I'm sure they gave us that message in school, but I remember just, you know, we, we were left to just go wherever and do whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Utterly unsupervised. But I do remember as a kid, you know, reading certain short stories about um, people going missing and, and bad things happening to unwary youth yeah. and being really uh, influenced by that. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, how can you not be? And and I think, too, for, for somebody who's curious, like I, I find that. You know, part of the writerly temperament is that uh, we sort of want to stare uh, into the darkness more so than others. You know, a lot of people are just like, okay, change the channel. You know, like, yeah. okay, I'm going to distract myself. Time to, like, dive back into, like, uh, Candy Crush or whatever. I don't want to think about this. But 
Yeah. Um, you know, I can't. I, I have to sit there and like ponder it, and I'll read about it until I yeah. until I can't so I anymore. Stick at it. Yeah. Scab. Yeah. yeah exactly. Though I should say my tolerance for doing that has diminished a little bit since I've had a kid. <laughs> I find myself a little really? bit. Yeah. Like uh, my my tolerance for like uh, violent television shows and movies, like something that's really heavy, like. I keep wanting to see that movie Fury, you know, the war movie that was uh, yeah. Brad Pitt. Like, I, I, want, I want to see it. I want to see it. It looks like a movie that, I, you know, I read the reviews. I was like, okay, I want to see this. But I can't bring myself to watch it at night because I don't want it to be the last thing I watch before I go to bed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just like, when am I going to wedge this into my life? It's going to have to be at, like, sunrise. So I'll have the rest of the yeah. day to, like, shake it off. Exactly. Yeah. Um, well. Well, okay, so you go on to, uh, you're at Iowa, you make the shift from visual to literary art, you get some encouragement. Um, how many years between undergraduate uh, degree and heading off to UMass Amherst were there? Like, did you go out and, you know, work some shitty jobs and flail a little bit, or was it an immediate jump? I had one job, and uh, I worked in the uh, Psychological and Quantitative Foundations at the University of Iowa, and that's how I answered the phone. Psychological Quantitative Foundations, and uh, I did that all day long, and I typed up manuscripts for professors and filed stuff, and I was, you know, a secretary, basically. And I was glad to have the job. It paid well than, better than any other, you know, job I'd had in my life, and and uh, and I did it for nine months, and uh, I was never happier to leave a job in my life. And that was uh, the reason I left was because I got uh, accepted at the University of Massachusetts. So you were happy day. So, okay. So yeah, I mean, and it's funny too, those early, like really shitty jobs, like there's something terrifying about those because you're like, Oh God, like I could be trapped here or like, how do I get out of it? You know, there's that, there's some sort of, uh, it might be an an overreaction, but I remember having that feeling like, Oh man, like this is how people live their lives. I worked like a, I worked like a construction job one summer where I was sort of like the foreman's bitch. And like, I was there Uh at five 30 and like Uh whatever, whatever shitty job no one wanted to do, I had to do. (laughs) So it's like, yeah, dig that. Yeah. Dig that hole, you know, or whatever. It was just brutal work. And I was like, my God, like I could do it. It was like, it was like the worst. It was like the worst. It was like, it was like being in school detention again. You know, it was like being shut up in a room and not being allowed to do anything, but stare at those walls for eight hours. Yeah. Yeah. Brief lunch break. And, and, uh, yeah. And I, well, the one thing it taught me is that I, I just never want to have that kind of a job, you know, the nine to five thing. Right. And, uh, and I would have taken, I took construction over that any day. Yeah. 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 The worst construction job in the world I'd rather do than sit in an office all day. Well, but I should, we, we, should, we should also point out that you actually uh, know how to do construction. <laughs> I didn't, yeah. My skill set was pretty limited. They were just like, he can dig, you know. I, I, yeah, but I've dug too, my friend. I yeah. have dug, and I've, I've torn out the toilets, and I've crawled under the houses with the rats and the rat shit falling down on you, and, you yeah, know. You've done it I've all. I've been in the trenches. Okay, okay, so you know. So I got, um, I got my props. Okay, but so you're working this shitty job. You must have been writing. I mean, if you you had to have samples to get into UMass, right? Yeah. Uh, well, I wasn't doing those shitty. Yeah, I was. Uh, I had been um, writing as an undergraduate, so I had some material from that from my classes as an undergraduate, and I was continuing to write while I was a secretary, and. Um, and that's uh, yeah, that's how I put my little uh, my little uh, application together. I feel yeah, I feel I feel I feel like being in a in an unhappy job like day job situation can sometimes be great fuel. You know, you're like how do because you kind of feel like you're writing your way out of it. You know, it's like you're it's like 
it's like you're uh, in the Shawshank Redemption, right. <laughs> Ch- chisel- yeah. chiseling, chipping away. The, yeah, just like yeah, I was secretly chipping away, and uh, it wasn't even that secret. I was, uh, I was also, I, I took a short stint as, um, as sort of a guest writer in the local paper. I did some little um, personal essay type stuff, and uh, and when the uh, professors got a, saw that in the paper, saw my picture, they were like, "Who are you? What are you?" <laughs> <laughs> this uh, secret columnist sitting in his desk all day long writing shit, and so they so they got the inkling uh, that I wouldn't be there for long, that I had other uh, aspirations. And so you get to UMass, and uh, you're finally with your tribe. I mean, was it a good experience? Oh, it's a great experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it was. It was a slow start. I've started every sort of new level of act, of, of schooling slowly. <laughs> I don't do so well at the start, but by the end, I'm, I'm you know I'm, I'm cruising. I'm, Top of the, top of the pile, top of the heap. Yeah. And uh, so that that was kind of my experience at UMass. I, you know, I had a hard, tough first tough semester was first semester was tough. I'm trying to say. Um, John Edgar Weidman had just arrived there too, great writer, and I desperately wanted to take a class with him, and uh, I did. And um, he had been to Iowa, you know, and he was a big basketball guy, and I was a big basketball guy. And so when we got together to talk about my fiction, we talked about Iowa and we talked about basketball, and uh, we didn't talk about my fiction at all. So wait, you play basketball? You played as a kid? I played. I played. You know, I never played. Um, uh, you know, uh, formally. I uh, always just played pickup games. I started playing really in college, and I still play today. That's when I get back to Iowa mainly. Yeah. So so yeah so. John Edgar Weidman and I, we we were we hit it off as friends and basketball players, but uh, he didn't care for my stuff, and, and I can't blame him. But by the time I left, you know, I had a you know I had an agent, I was publishing stuff, and uh, so I'm always sort of a I'm always sort of a late bloomer. But it was a good experience. It was a great experience, actually. Okay, so how I mean, so you you came out of there publishing and agented. So I mean, it, you made the leap. I mean, it's not like you you know did the, got the MFA and then spent like another. 10 years slogging before you saw anything in print. Yeah, I got yeah, I got just enough uh, encouragement while I was there to spend the next 25 years slogging. <laughs> <laughs> right. Trying to get more stuff in print. Yeah. But yeah, you know, there's a lot there's a lot of people who go through programs and, you know, never you know, I I I struck it pretty good pretty early and uh the agent didn't last. I didn't get him anything he could sell, but it was a you know, it's a good experience to go through. Okay, so what about like it sounds like you but you uh you you stuck with it, and it seems like you uh, grinded out, like work wise. Like, are you? Is that an accurate assessment? Are you somebody who has like a really strong, disciplined writing practice, or no? I think if I did, I'd have more than by now. I'd have more than three books. I mean, there are people out there who really crank it out, you know. And I've written more than I've published. Obviously, not everything I've published or written has been published. Thank God. And uh, I. Uh, I come and go, you know, when I, when I was working on descent, there were times when I was really grinding it out, you know, every day I would look up the clock and it'd be like, wow, I just spent eight hours working on this book. That's awesome. Um, but then I would get distracted by some other aspect of life and not work for weeks or months. And in one case, even more than a year, I think. Really? Uh, how many, yeah. how many years do you spend on this book? About six years. Okay. Cause this is interesting to me because I, can, I kind of feel like, for some people anyway, like working every day in some sort of really militant, disciplined way can be detrimental, you know, because yeah. you can start to tear down the book when you shouldn't or, 
And and then there's also the work of the subconscious mind. You know, you got to let your, like let things stew a little bit. You know, and then you come back to it with fresh eyes, and you can sort of see the thing. And um, you know, it, it's a little bit dangerous because you don't want to get into a mode where you're sort of giving yourself permission to slack off. But uh, some, yeah. sometimes working in a way that feel, you know intuitively, you sort of know when to step away and when to come back might be the best thing for the book. Am I am I trying well, to, I, am I trying to justify? No. I appreciate the the attempt to justify my slackness, <laughs> slacking off. I'm, I'm willing to listen to that all day long. But I I uh, I had a really I had an interesting experience that led you know if I had not had this other experience I would not have probably ever gotten to Descent. But I I tried to write a book um, after my first novel, my young adult novel, Never So Green. I tried to write a book by working on it every day, like I'd been told to in classes and by other writers. Right. Um, and uh, a writer writes every day, no matter what. So I was getting up every day before I was living in LA, LA at the time, and I was a carpenter. And so I was getting up early every day and working on this book for a couple of hours, no matter what. And then I would go to, you know, swing a hammer and, and make a living. And at the end of it, you know, I did that for about two years, and, and then I spent some time revising the book and gave it to my new agent and uh it just went nowhere you know it just it, it, uh, it never got any traction so it what, was a great dis- yeah go ahead so what's the difference you know like when you look at descent um which has come out to like you know glowing reviews and it you know it feels like the thing i mean i don't know you know a lot of times the finished product can be deceiving you don't know how much of a mess it was before but um do you, do you can you articulate what the difference was with that one was there a difference or is it just like this one worked for some reason yeah um yeah, well, that's kind of where I was headed. I was going to say that uh, that process just didn't work for whatever reason, that process of writing every day um, for a couple of hours. I never really got immersed, I think, in the in the story. I was just sort of chipping away at it like, you know, Shawshank Redemption again. Yeah. And But I never found the sewer line <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. uh, to, to force the train the metaphor. But uh, so with Descent, I am... Um, I'd been up in the mountains and and uh, I was on my own schedule. You know, I was my own boss. Uh, Dad wasn't really looking over my shoulder, and uh, he would not want to hear how long, you know, how much quicker I might have done that job if I weren't spending, <laughs> you know, hours on end working on a book. But anyway, so the process I I adopted for this book early on was that I'm only going to work on it when I know I have the entire day. I don't have any clock ticking. I don't have any place I've got to be. And that's one of the reasons it took so long is because I didn't have a lot of those days. You know? Right. So, but I think that what it allowed me to do is like completely uh, inhabit the book, the characters, and give me time to really um, become completely immersed in them in a way that, you know, two hours here and there won't, won't let you do. So I think that was the big difference. The big difference was really just not writing unless I could really just right for the entire day however long it took however long i had the gas that's what i did wow that's interesting that made the difference and this family you know in the book these characters uh where do they come from they come from the you know that same self that same deep uh unconscious place that we were talking about earlier um i don't really know i think they come from my own childhood from my sense of my family was sort of uh, broken up early, and uh, what your parents? When, when did when did your parents divorce? How old were you? I think I was six or seven. Okay. 
Um, so family to me has always been a tricky sort of subject, but this family, I think even before this terrible thing happens to them, were, they were in, they were in trouble. You know, I think the marriage is in trouble and they're, they're putting the best face on it they can, but they're just sort of on the precipice of falling apart. Yeah. So I think that comes from my own family history, not to get too uh, psychoanalytical about it. No, please. Uh, but they were also, you know, they were also Midwesterners like me. You know, they were, Grant was a carpenter and the mother taught um, high school English or whatever she teaches. And, and uh, the kid is, the 15-year-old boy is awkward and, and uh, the daughter is an overachiever, right, an overachiever brother. And uh, so, you know, I think that's kind of a sort of an adopted mental um, effigy of my own Yeah, well, and you know, the, the thing too, you know, when you talk about uh, relationships, like the whether it's a divorce or the, fra you know, there's the fracturing of human relationships uh, in the context of trauma, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's interesting and, and very sad to note that like when something like this happens, when there's a horrible loss, like parents who lose a child, like the statistics on their ability to stay together are, you know, not encouraging. Right. And like, you know, it's dark to think about, but it's, it's hard for, for people who are dealing with, uh, you know, a grief that large to kind of, um, I don't know, to, to deal with it together. I kind of feel like people spin off into their own orbits a lot of times when that sort of thing happens and it becomes hard to, to kind of bridge the divide. Yeah. And, and I, I think, uh, one of the most compelling aspects of this story was that, yeah, the parents, you know, they 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 can't hold it together, but neither can um, the boy, you know, the 15-year-old boy who was up there with her when this happens. And uh, two years later, he, he really can't bear to be around either of his parents, you know. It's all just too painful. So he's sort of out wandering the world at a very young age and he's growing up, you know, way too fast and getting into all kinds of trouble. Um, so it's just sort of a... I don't know, this sort of a ripple effect sure. that sort of destroys everybody and sends them off on their separate harrowing paths. Well, you know, it's funny because I saw, uh, like, fortunately, you know, my family, we didn't have any uh, terrible loss like that, as you know, in the immediate sense. But I was, uh, prox you know, I was, uh, I was close to people who did, you know, some of my best friends lost siblings and... Um, you know, I saw, and then saw another neighbor lose a mother and you see how these things unfold. And, uh, it seems like the family either disperses and everybody goes, you know, breaks apart or they come together tighter. I saw it happen both ways. And I've thought a lot about why, you know, like why did one family come together and why did one family spin apart? And, you know, now that I'm a, a father, I'm thinking to myself, you know, if something horrible ever happens. Um, the, you know, the, I think the parent really drives it. You know, like the, how the parents behave really impacts the kids. It's super heavy for a kid to have to look at their parents be in pain, you know, especially if it's the kind of pain that a parent is overwhelmed by, you know, like you, that's part of the responsibility of being a parent. And, and, you know, that's no judgment on parents who are overwhelmed because Lord knows it's an overwhelming thing to deal with. But, you know, I, I, I like to think that I'm aware of that and that I would try to step up, you know, but yeah. I hope I hope I never have to. No, I hope you never do either, but I'm, I'm sure that you would, and I like to think that I would, um, you know, but, uh, and I, and I think that, I don't think that in this, in the case of this novel that, that they're bad parents or they've done anything, uh, I just think they're more, they're more flawed than they can control. You yeah, know? they're human. They're, yeah, and, and 
the mother in particular, I mean, I think one of the, for me, one of the most painful aspects of the, of the story is, you know, how abandoned the boy feels by his mother, who is just so overcome by, you know, this, this is really a second big tragedy in her life. Mm. And, uh, she is just not up to mothering him and, uh, is also more to the point wonders why he didn't do more to keep this from happening, this thing from happening. So it's really kind of, I don't know, it's, it's kind of, I can't, I, I get kind of sort of, uh, I don't know, even a little emotional thinking about it now with the, you know, a kid like that just sort of being utterly abandoned by his mother. Yeah. Well, but there's like, a, you know, it, it sounds bleak to say, but it's psychologically astute, you know, it's definitely something that happens, you know, unfortunately. Yeah. And it's, a, and it's, it's like a very human response, you know, you can right. see, you can, uh, you feel like I, I feel very much like these characters, uh, they feel very real, which, uh, I hope you, you know, would take as a high compliment because I do. Yeah. It's, it's like almost yeah. documentary realism. So, um, you know, but I think too, in the context of grief and in the context of trying to be psychologically astute and rendering characters who happen to be going through something very difficult, um, you know, you have to have at least a passing awareness of like, uh, spiritual grounding, you know, that's not, I'm not, you know, it could come in the context of religion. That's not really what I'm driving at. I, I guess I'm, I'm curious about how you, um, approach that, you know, both as a human being, also as a writer. Like, I, I just imagine that you have to have some kind of like foundation in that way to cope with like heavy darkness in life. Maybe not, you know, I guess there are people who can just be like straight up scientific atheists and like rationalists, but yeah, you know, for me, it's like, you gotta have something, um, there, you have to have considered those questions in order to be able to be the kind of steadying presence that, you know, a child would need, you know what I'm saying? In order to be able to not go under, you know, in, in sink beneath the waves of your own grief or whatever. Like, is yeah. that, is that something that you, um, you know, ha have a good sense of in your own life or that you really confronted in the writing of this book? Well, I think, I think I was, I think I was living it out in the writing of the book. And I think one of the points of the book is that we often don't confront that, that mystery or that, or what we really feel until we have to, right. Until we're beginning to bargain and plead, um, for something not to be the way it is. You know, and, and this happens to Grant, who is of the two parents. He's the one who, you know, says to his kids, you, you have to figure out for yourself whether there's, whether you believe in, you know, a greater power or not. Um, but the moment his child goes missing, he begins to beg God, you know, to, to, to reverse it. Well, it's, it's funny that you say that because, like, you know, the joke I always tell is, like, I'm, I think I lean more atheist than, you know, I, I don't even know what I am, but I, my joke is that like everybody prays to God when there's turbulence, you know, <laughs> sure, right. you know like exactly. all, of, all of a sudden you're like, please, whoever's out there, you know, can we, can yeah. we just get this thing yeah. on the ground, you know? Exactly. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I have, I'm, I'm lucky in that I haven't come to that point yet. Um, but I sort of lived it out, I think through these characters and, um, I, I'm not a religious person myself. Um, but it's hard for me to, really believe also that everything is completely just um, random and accidental. Uh, I don't know that I would call it fate or karma or anything like that, uh, but I, I have a sort of a spiritual sense of the world. Um, 
Yeah, me too. But I don't I don't actively pray to a, you know, a god type figure. Right. Right. Well, yeah, I'm the same way. I just I guess the thing too is that it's about death. You know, it's yeah. about loss. It's about the inevitability of that and I think when you write a book that deals with it, especially deals with a, you know, a very unpleasant uh confrontation with it, you know, um forces you to really do some deep thinking about it and it's something people are really loath to do and i think that that can be uh unwise you know like yeah. it would seem like something that's like like the ultimate reality that confronts us all to spend your entire life trying to deny it or you know doing everything you can to sort of distract yourself from having to think about it um you know like you say puts you in a situation where when you're finally confronted with it you have to really cram <laughs> yeah exactly uh, it's better yeah it's, it's I'm- yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say it's better to, to get in there and to to try to come to terms and um, you know what do they say you know die each day or whatever. Um, yeah, like I think that's sort of the way I hope to try to be. Yeah, well, and there's the there's the other side of the coin is someone who's a person of faith and believes in God's plan until you know something terrible happens and 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 they begin to doubt what kind of God would do this to me. You know, well, right. <laughs> this is the case of the mother, it's like, you know, are you kidding? I mean, it's just, uh, it's hard to say, well, God has a plan, and so God decided to take my child from me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, those like yeah. those sorts of those sorts of that's. I mean, I th- I feel like those sorts of assertions kind of uh, are blown to bits in the face of things like that, you know, especially like bad things happening to children. It's hard to, it's hard to kind of, it's hard for me to even begin to entertain the notion of like a puppeteer, like sky God, you know, like it's like, okay, well that's clearly not, not happening. You just have to find, you have to find another, another way of understanding, um, what's pretty much, uh, incomprehensible. And I don't know if there are answers, you know what I'm saying? Like, I think like when something really, really hideous happens, um, you know, it's it's something that human, like human on human crime is the wrong phrase, but you know what I'm saying. It's perpetrated yeah. by humans against humans, yeah. and right, um, random acts, human violence. Okay, so here's a question: uh, because when we see these sorts of awful things happening, you read about a serial killer, you read about somebody who's been horrible to children, or you know, blah blah blah. There's any number of instances we could point to. And people often uh, demonize; they they call human, you know, these human beings monsters. Um, do you believe in that? Like they're purely evil or do you think that, um, that's an oversimplification and actually, um, prevents us from, from understanding and maybe preventing further atrocities? Yeah. What you just said. Okay. <laughs> the last part. I, um, okay, good. Yeah. I, I really don't believe that there's, you know, I mean, I know there's, there's, there's psychopaths among us, surely, um, who are miswired, uh, but I I don't think that um, I don't think it's right to call that evil. Uh, I just think it's um, you know it's it's bad it's bad wiring or it's it's flawed chemistry uh, or whatever it is. Um, <clears throat> but uh, yeah, I don't think uh, I I'm always interested in the gray area, you know, and I, and I and I'm always interested in in these stories. When these things do happen, it's always the guy next door, you know, who's who is just a quiet, simple, nice guy right. and uh, a good neighbor, um, never caused anybody any trouble. Right. So it's always this great shock to everybody that there's, you know, this person had these awful sort of.
desires and predilections. And, and but the truth is, you know, there's there's bad thoughts passing through everybody all the time. And I think it's just a matter of how far those thoughts get in anyone's particular human's brain. Right. And, you know, you know, a lot of times, too, when you think of it, when you learn about violent criminals, it's like, you know, you, you scratch the surface a little bit and you learn about their childhood and it's almost always they yeah. were they were abused. They were, right. you know, horribly uh, mistreated. They had violence around them their whole lives. And, you yeah. know, it's not always the case, but it's, you know, it's very, very often the case. And uh, I, I just I, I sort of recoil when people try to uh, dehumanize people who yeah. perpetrate awful crimes you know it's not to diminish the awfulness of the crime but i think it's just a, it's a it's a cheap way out you know yeah exactly um so what are you working on next do you i mean do you have anything going like do you need maybe you need to head back up to colorado and start doing some carpentry to, to get the next book going something, or something like that i <laughs> i gotta get out of this office with these brick walls uh yeah you know i don't um i i wouldn't tell anybody i was writing a novel when I was writing Descent until I had about 300 pages, you know, yeah. I would tell myself, but I wouldn't tell other people. All right. And so I don't, it's not something I, I'm comfortable like saying I'm doing this or I'm doing that. Um, I just sort of, uh, I have to sort of, um, keep that to myself for now. I got you. But the wheels, I'll just tell you the wheels are turning. The wheels, the wheels are, are always turning. Sure. And, uh, who knows okay. right now? I just have to get through this particular crazy, uh, phase of, uh, you know, publicity. Well, yeah, it's kind of, yeah, there's a lot going on and a lot to sort of pay attention to. And, and, uh, I'm not saying I, I don't want it or didn't ask, you know, I'm not saying I'm ungrateful. I'm just a little, uh, off my, I'm a little off balance right now. Yeah. Well, no, it happens. I think it happens to most writers who are sort of like, you know, writing is the primary thing. And then the book rolls out and suddenly it's like, I'm answering lots of email interviews and, you know, thinking about, thinking talking about myself too much or whatever but exactly that's yeah i'm mean, talking about myself way too much well, now now i feel bad <laughs> just made you sit through an hour no. of it <laughs> no I, I we were just talking yeah well okay it's last question uh, sure. any 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 plans to make a movie with this book is that something you would hope for Are the movie rights out there what's happening i think that'd be fun you know i think it, i think it'd be fun if it were done well and that's always the question um, there's nothing that I can say that I know of definitively. Um, it is actively being shown um, to Hollywood people, yeah. and that's about all I know right now. And everyone, I have, you know, I lived out in Los Angeles for years, and I have a lot of friends out there, and friends who know friends, and and I'm always hearing from friends who are saying, "I'm going to put this in the hands of so and so," and that's really the last you hear of that. Yeah, <laughs> you no, know? it's oh yeah, that's the that's the way it goes. But, but I do have a great agent in New York who is. Um, you know, is connected with great agents in Hollywood, so they're working. They're working on it. My people are on it. Your people That's are all on I it. I can tell you. All right. All I can tell you right now. Well, listen, I uh, I, I really appreciate the time, and uh, congratulate you on the success of this book, and wish you well on whatever is next, assuming that it I'll even think. exists. I mean, who knows what it is at this yeah, point? Who knows? It's it's a- it, it, we'll find out. But thank you very much. I really enjoyed talking to you. All right, guys, there you have it. That's Tim Johnston. His novel, Descent, is out there now from Algonquin Books. Go get your copy. You can find Tim online at timjohnston.net. You can also find him on the Facebook, and he's on Twitter, where his handle is at tjohnstonwriter. At tjohnstonwriter. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget that this podcast has its own official app. It's free. 
Go get the Other People app. It's free. It's available for your iPhone. It's available for your Android. Uh, did I mention that it's free? It's the best way to listen. You get the app on your device. The most recent 50 episodes will be there waiting for you free of charge. You can listen to them online or offline. You can download them to listen while you're uh, in transit and not near Wi-Fi. It's very convenient. And then if you want to uh, stream the deep archives, get access to everything, you can sign up for premium right there within the app. Support the show. It's uh, It's very cheap. 75 cents a month for a full year. It's that cheap. Uh, and while you're at it, go sign up for the TNB book club over at the nervousbreakdown.com. Click on book club in the menu bar. It's a great way to uh, enrich your existence with uh, literature. And, you know, if you're uh, extraordinarily uh, wealthy, sign up for many premium subscriptions. Sign up for 100 book club subscriptions. <laughs> it's a great way to give back. Give the gift of books. You know, and what it comes down to, and I, this is not something I've, uh, I have cornered the market on to, uh, you know, to be cute about it, but like wisdom with money, being wise about money. I think someone should write a, a nonfiction book called the wise rich. And I want it to contain like multiple profiles of really, uh, wise, rich people who really understand wealth and like what to do with it in like a deeply, uh, a spiritual way, if there's if that's the right word. You know what I'm saying? We need to lionize these people. We need to tell their stories rather than simply lionizing people because they happen to be sitting on a mountain of cash. Like you shouldn't be celebrated just for having it. You should be celebrated for uh, what you do with it and for the depth of your understanding of uh, what it means. Right? Okay. Please remember that Henry David Thoreau died at age 45 and that Rudyard Kipling's first language was Hindi. That's it for now. Uh, thanks again to Tim Johnston and to the uh, fine people of Algonquin Books. Go get your copy of Descent immediately. It is gripping. It's a gripping book. And uh, thanks to you guys for listening. I appreciate it. And I will be back, um, you know, very shortly. Just a week. I will be back with another uh, episode of this podcast. Another conversation with another uh, writerly human being. And uh, in the meantime... I'm just going to stare at this uh, picture of Tom Brady on my wall. Actually, I'm going to stop for a second. Wouldn't it be funny if Tom Brady, uh, in the aftermath of his uh, glorious professional football career, uh, decides to become a writer of fiction and turns out to be really fucking great at it? That would, wouldn't that be great?